Um, And when you get there, please turn with me to Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as you guys are getting there, last week, um, Pastor Dan shared out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just the first four verses, and Paul's talking about a similitude or a story or an event from the Old Testament that is meant to draw parallels to the New Testament. And so last week, he uh, took us back to the story of the Israelites as they were leaving Egyptian captivity and that whole process of how that came about and then how that relates to uh, Jesus and his time and then again, even for, farther in the future, how it relates to us as believers and followers of Jesus. For instance, we said that each event kind of captures a picture of Jesus. And these similitudes are all through the Old Testament, as you see Jesus throughout the entire Old Testament and all the events that take place. And so when he went to the Israelites and Pharaoh said, um, you know, we're going to set you free, there was uh, uh, the Passover where Jesus or God basically told the Israelites that in order to um, be freed from captivity, you have to sacrifice the lamb. You take that blood and you pour it over the door. And, uh, and that's how the symbol that you believe you're trusting in me and my plan, and then you will be set free. And for those that chose not to take that step and do that, they, of course, faced the same fate that the Egyptians faced for not believing and not trusting God and his plan. And so, of course, that's a picture as you fast forward that Jesus became our sacrificial lamb. It was through his blood and his uh, crucifixion on the cross that we are saved, that we are redeemed, and we are set free from our bondage and sin. And so, again, you draw all these parallels, again, as they leave uh, Egypt and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. There are all these pictures throughout that story um, that lead to Jesus and point to him in salvation and the process that we go through as followers of Jesus. If you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to pick up that teaching um, because it's just nuts and bolts of salvation, what it is, how we go about believing in that, and then what the process is through uh, that Jesus went through and why he had to go through that on our behalf. And so today, as we bring that up to current times, the question that we have to ask ourselves is now that we know about salvation. For those of us that have taken the step, we believe in Jesus, what do we do with that? You know, what do we do with that? Where do we take that? Do we take it, internalize it, and not share it? Or does the Bible clearly state that we to go out and share it with the world? And so when we talk about this idea of evangelism, the idea of sharing our faith with other people, it makes us pretty uncomfortable, for the most part. It makes us pretty uncomfortable. And uh, as I was thinking through this teaching this week, I was brought back to things in life that I really don't like to do. Okay, and so as I started thinking through it, there's one thing that glaringly jumps out to me all the time. You probably look at me and you could probably guess this in a heartbeat. One of the things that I hate to do is manual labor. <laughs> manual labor. There are people that are paid to do it. I pay you to do it. You come to my house, you get it done. It's fantastic. So for example, about, uh, about eight years ago or so, my wife and I got married and we moved out to Jupiter Farms. We had a house out here, acre and a quarter, like most plots are out here. And we wanted to get a dog before we had kids. So we wanted to get a dog. And so we went and we picked out a yellow lab. His name was Jack Bauer. So we lovingly call him Bauer. So for those of you guys that have never seen 24, I'm sorry, but you need to get with the times. Fantastic TV show. But our dog's name is Bauer, so we call him Bauer. And uh, we wanted a place for him to go out back and run around and, and be free and have fun. So we decided we're going to put in a fence. And so I call my dad, and we go to Home Depot. We buy the materials. I've got, uh, I believe my grandfather came over for a little bit, my uncles. You know, we had some people there helping us. We said, all right, let's, let's tackle this fence. And so I lay everything out. I got my, my post hole digger. If you guys have never seen one of those before, it's basically two wooden poles with like two shovels on the end. And as you open it, it kind of grabs a little bit of dirt and you toss it aside. So that's how it works. You slam it in the ground, you pick up the dirt and go. So I got through about um, one, maybe two holes before I said, 
all right, that's enough of this nonsense. So, I mean, you just, no, it's not going to happen. We're talking, you know, 50 to 60 poles around the yard. I'm like, this is not going to work. And so we go back to Home Depot. They actually have uh, an auger. So it's what, you know, a machine where it's gas powered and has like a, a corkscrew on the end and you just press it into the ground and it picks the dirt up out of the hole for you. And it's much more quicker and much, much more efficient. And so we go rent one of those, we bring it out to the house, we rented it for a couple days, and we're going through. And there's one thing that you have to note, as if you guys have never gone through this process, is that there's some times that you hit soil, and you, know, you just kind of go right down, it comes right up, and you move on to the next one. But I would say about nine times out of ten, that's not the process. <laughs> so we'd go to the next one and be like, oh, that was easy, and then you hit like rocks, and then you hit like clay, or you hit you know, a power line or something you know, in our case. So, you're going to do something. Anyway, it's just a massive pain. So we go, finally, after like two days, we get these things out. And then you go through the process of stretching the fence. And I remember sitting there at the end of those two days and thinking, my goodness, there are people that do this every single day for a living. And I'm like, God bless you guys that are blue-collar workers out there making it happen every day. I applaud you, um, and I would be glad to hire you to come do these things at my house next time I have a project to do. So I just, I hate doing that. I hate it. And so as I went, it was, again, this week as I was going through that, I related that to sharing our faith. Now, obviously, I'm pretty passionate about manual labor. I'm not that passionate about not sharing my faith. But there are some of us that truly have a genuine fear of sharing our faith. We don't like to do it. And there are multiple reasons why we may say, you know what, I'm not comfortable sharing my faith, or I just don't want to share my faith because I don't want to hurt somebody that I love. There are some of us in here that, you know, the Bible tells us we all are given a gift. Some of us have that gift of evangelism. So I just want to put you on the spot. Does anybody here say I have the gift of evangelism? I actually love doing that. One, two. All right, that's two out of, let's call it 240 people. So two people, all right? So that's precisely why, thank you for proving my point, why we're here today to talk about sharing our faith. Because if we relied on those two people to go out from this place today and share their faith, we'd be in a world of trouble, okay? So the Bible clearly mandates that all of us, as followers of Jesus, have a responsibility to the gospel and a responsibility to the lost. And so we are to leave this place and carry that message with us and share it with those that we come in contact with. And so I read a blog this week that was talking about uh, this guy that was wondering why people don't like to go out and make this, you know, as easy as it should be. And so here's what he came up with. He used to ask people, why don't you like sharing your faith? What is, what is the big holdup? And here's what some people said. Uh, the number one answer was just a fear of rejection. I don't like rejection. don't want to be rejected. So I have a fear of rejection. Some people said I didn't want to interrupt people's lives. They're going about their thing. I don't need to bother them. Uh, they have a fear of what other people will think about you because you follow Jesus. I have a fear of breaking a family relationship, so I don't want to you know, hurt my, my loved one by you know, forcing my religion upon them and telling them about Jesus. I don't want to lose a close friendship for the same reason. Um, I fear my own weaknesses and hypocrisies. So if, if, I'm, if I'm a hypocrite, um, I don't want people to, you know, if I go out there and put it out there, I'm a follower of Jesus, they're going to be watching me more closely. I don't want to be offensive to people. The gospel is offensive. We know that. The truth is offensive to people. Um, I don't want, I don't have time to go out there and do it. And then lastly, some people just said, you know, I don't care. It's not for me. It's not my responsibility. So I don't want to go out and do that. And so as we take the next couple of weeks and talk about this idea of sharing our faith, we're going to jump in today at Mark chapter four. And uh, Jesus is going to share with some very practical insights about the four types of people that we are and the four types of people that we come across as we share the gospel. 
And so it's a very practical and simple concept that we can carry with us as we go. Before we did that, just a little background on, on parables and why Jesus used them. As you study through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that Jesus often taught in parables or stories that had like an alternate meaning. So he would use this story to explain something, but then he always went behind the scenes with his disciples to explain what he meant by the parable. So when he taught in public, he would share a parable, and then behind the scenes, his disciples say, what did you mean by that story? And Jesus would take time then to explain exactly what he meant to his disciples. And as you read through the Gospels, we see plenty of times where Jesus is very, he teaches almost two different ways. When he's teaching to a group of people, he's much more simplistic to the point, but then to his disciples and true followers, he kind of goes into more detail. And there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, it's just the level of understanding that the, that the disciples had that the, the general public did not. And then the level of maturity that the disciples had that the public did not. And so as we go out and we share our faith with those in our lives, we have to know that, you know, for some of us, we're very passionate about theology, in-depth theology, and, and, and studying the Word, and getting deep into hermeneutics, and studying what the Bible means. But that's not how we're going to go out and evangelize to somebody that has no idea who God is, who Jesus is, and what the Bible says. Okay, we need to be simple in our approach, going out and just telling people about Jesus, reflecting that in our lives, and sharing that with people. In the same way, Jesus said, I'm going to be simple to the masses and then explain more in depth as you gain that maturity and understanding behind what I'm saying. And so Jesus in Mark chapter 4 explains to his disciples why he taught in parables. We're actually going to jump down about halfway to Mark chapter 4, verse 9. And this is what Jesus has to say, uh, starting in verse 10, sorry. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, everything in, um, those who are outside get everything in parables. In verse 12, it says, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. I like the way that uh, Matthew and his gospel said it. We see this parable of the four soils in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in Matthew, he said this. It says, and the disciples came to him, came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you has been granted, I want you to underline this, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. And then underline this next line, it says this, for whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so Jesus is explaining this context, explaining what he's meaning to his disciples here. And he says, look, when people grasp this, it's not just taking it and doing nothing with it. And he goes, I don't want the people to get it, because once you do, you're held accountable for these things. Once you grasp it and you have a knowledge and understanding there's something that you have to do with it. Okay? And it's not just a knowledge about God and a knowledge about Jesus, but it's taking it to that next level. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 7, he says, those who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. We've spent so much time studying the Bible, maybe even coming to church and learning about God, but we've never taken time to internalize that into what we truly believe. Taking that next step of saying, Jesus, I know who you are, but I believe in you. The Bible tells us, you know, Satan obviously knows about God. The demons know about God, but the thing that separates a believer from them is internalizing it and that true belief that Jesus is the one that saves us. So it's much more than just knowledge. 
And so on your outline, I said Jesus' explanation reveals two things about parables. These are two things we have to know before we jump in to the parable today. So number one, on your outline, parables will only be understood by believers. Parables will only be understood by believers. He says, look, to you guys have been given the, the, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You guys will grasp this. Jesus is there to explain it to his disciples, to go in depth on exactly what he means. He says, you guys will get this. As believers today, we have the word of God to uh, explain these things to us. We are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit to give us uh, more understanding, to guide us, to direct us, to lift those spiritual blinders from our eyes. In John sixteen thirteen, Jesus said, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so we have the spirit of God indwelling us and opening our eyes to these things. And so parables only be understood by believers. And number two, the second thing Jesus says, and this one is really important for today, is with understanding comes responsibility. With understanding comes responsibility. In verse 12, he said, while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. He says, look, again, what I just said, you grasp this concept, then you have to do something with it. You will be held accountable for knowing this and not doing something with it. So once we grasp it, we need to take it with us and share it with others. So the good thing is, it's explained for us, but the bad thing for us is, you're now going to be asked, okay, you knew, why didn't you do anything with it? So we have to internalize it. We have to take it with us. We'll be held responsible for the things that we know. And then in verse 13, Jesus goes on and it says, And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? So he says, look, this parable is, is the basics. If you don't get this, you won't understand the rest. You just don't get it. You have to understand what this one is saying to truly grasp the rest. And so let's go back to the very beginning of Mark chapter 4. Uh, it gives us a little bit of an introduction here before he jumps into the parable, and it says this. And I want you to underline as we go. It says this. He began to underline the word teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into the boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land, and he was underlined teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his underlined teaching. And so we're going to stop right there before Jesus jumps into the parable. There's a couple things that we note. Number one, the first thing is that Jesus, as he was teaching this time, it says they actually taught from a boat. So he got on a boat, they push him out, uh, let's say, you know, 10 feet, 15 feet, whatever, out into the sea, anchor him, and he's sitting there on this boat teaching the crowd. And there's a couple reasons he would do that. Uh, number one is simply the size of the crowd. And if you go back into the, the um, scripture there, it says there was a very large crowd there. So you can assume at this point, Jesus' ministry is probably in the thousands of people there that were here to hear Jesus teach. And so he needed some space to be able to teach them. The second thing we note is that Jesus, of course, was known for performing miracles, healing people, people that needed uh, healing. Some of them, it says, would even just reach out and touch Jesus, and because of their faith, they were healed. And so people were just trying to get near to Jesus to, to touch him and to have that, that experience and just to show their faith in him so that they would be healed. And so Jesus needed space as he went out to teach his people. And the second thing we see is the emphasis that Mark puts on the word teach. Three times in those two verses, he talks about Jesus teaching the people. And he probably taught at this point for hours in front of the crowd, standing up there saying you know, these things and teaching. One of the things we know about Scripture is that the Holy Spirit, you know, these words are, are inspired by God, written by man, um, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so what they would do is take the highlights of these teachings, and that's what we get in Scripture. If we sat there and wrote down every word of Jesus, the Bible would be, you know, 
so long that nobody could get through it probably. But it's, they sat down and take the highlights of these concepts, of highlights of these teachings, and wrote them down for us. And so Mark sat down and wrote down the highlights of what was probably hours of teaching uh, from Jesus. And the thing that we love about these two verses, like I said, is the emphasis that it put on Jesus teaching his people. Here at Calvary, you hear us say this all the time, we have a commitment to teaching the Bible. Okay, that's who we are. It's who we will always be. There are churches that, uh, you know, today that want to make life about us. You know, it's about making you feel better about your life, and it's all about you. But as we study through scriptures, we realize quickly that it's not about me, but it's about Jesus. You know, the Bible says that my life is to be a living sacrifice for him. That's not an easy term. The word sacrifice doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Of course, I'm supposed to sacrifice my life for Jesus and lay down my desires for what he wants for my life. And so we have a commitment to taking chunks of Scripture. We're going to study through them, see what the Holy Spirit wants us to gain from this. What did God want to teach us through this? When we see words repeated, like teach, obviously it's an emphasis that we want to know. And we are committed to teaching the Bible. As you walked in this morning, everybody got a program. On the front of your program is our vision statement, and it's pretty simple. It simply says this, Calvary Church exists to help people grow in their relationship with Jesus through the teaching of God's word. That is who we are. When you come here, you know what you're going to get. We're going to teach straight through God's word because our desire is to have maturing believers growing. Every single week you come in here, you're leaving and taking steps of faith and growing in your faith and your relationship with Jesus. So we are committed to teaching the word of God. And so jumping back into the text, Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, we're going to read through this parable, and then we'll kind of go back through and see what exactly Jesus was trying to teach us here. Starting in verse 3, it said this. Listen to this. Behold, the underlined sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some underlined the word seed, fell beside the road, and the birds came and underlined and ate it up. In verse 5, it says, other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it underlined withered away. And verse 7, it goes on to say, Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and underlined choked it, and yielded underlined no crop. And then in verse 8, he says, Other seeds fell into good soil. As they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He's relating, obviously, the story of a farmer to a believer today. So what they would do back then was they would take their bag of seed, or if you guys have ever used your shirt before to carry a bunch of stuff in it, that's kind of what they would do. They'd have this massive mound of seed, and they would plow their field, and then they'd walk through the field and just kind of scatter the seed all throughout um, the, the soil that they just turned over. And as they, it was kind of haphazard, they'd walk through and just kind of you know, spread it out, and some of it would fall in the good soil, and some of it would fall in, in the weeds that they didn't pick, and some of it would fall in the road that ran next to their property. It would kind of go all over the place. And so wherever that seed fell, that was reflected upon, you know, did that crop grow and produce, or did it fall somewhere that it couldn't grow because it had the nutrients and stuff that it needed? So on your outline, as we move forward, there are three things that I'm going to want you to, to take notice of. There are three words that we see over and over again. Number one is the sower, and the sower is simply us as the believer. The sower is the believer. The second thing we see over and over again is the seed, and the seed is simply the word of God or the gospel, the word of God or the gospel. And the third thing we see is the soil, and that's the heart. The soil is the heart. So as we study through this, we see Jesus drawing parallels from a farmer to us as a believer. As we go through life and we're spreading that seed, as we're sharing the gospel, as we're telling people about Jesus, there are four types of hearts that Jesus goes into and says, this is where those words will fall. 
Okay, they will fall on some people that are completely going to reject it, all the way down to the people that are, have accepted Jesus and are living it out in their lives. So there's four types of people, Jesus says, according to this parable. So in verse 3 through 9, Jesus shared the parable, the story. And then in verse 15 through 19, we see Jesus explain what he meant through the teaching of this parable. So what we're going to do is we'll go back and read about each of the different soils, and then we're going to jump ahead to where Jesus explained exactly what he meant um, in that verse. So starting in verse 4, jumping back there, it says, As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And so as you jump forward to verse 15, Jesus said this. It said, These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes, and underline, takes away the word which has been sown in them. So Satan comes to take away the word that has been sown in them. So number one, the first heart that we encounter, according to Jesus, is the hard heart. The hard heart. And then simply, this person is not saved. This person is not saved. And so he says, Satan comes and he snatches the words before they even have a chance to, to settle down. Says so the bird comes down, eats the seed, and never has a chance from the start. And so all of us, I think, as you think about the hard heart, you can think about the people in your life that completely reject the gospel. The people that you try to share Jesus with that say, you know what, that's not for me. I want nothing to do with it. I have very good friends of mine that are atheists that choose just, there is no God at all. And they completely flat out reject the Bible and reject his teaching and reject the gospel. And so that's what we're talking about with the hard heart. They just want nothing to do with it. And so we have to grasp that Satan is a very real person trying to stop everybody we come in contact with from taking that step of believing in Jesus. And it says right here, they literally snatch the words away from them so they don't even have a chance to begin. As we walk through this process of sharing of our faith, it's a constant dripping on people, constantly telling them about people, about Jesus, reflecting it in our lives, and letting people know that we love Jesus because Satan is constantly out there working against us. And so on your outline, I put the meaning. It is this. It says, this person has completely rejected the gospel. They want nothing to do with it. In Luke eight twelve, it says this. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart and underlines so that they will not believe and be saved. They will not believe and be saved. So as Luke talks about this, he says they won't believe, so they won't be saved. And you hear us talk about that word saved quite a bit in church and amongst our friends, talk about being saved and salvation. And that insinuates, of course, that we're being saved from something, something bad. And so, for instance, if you're in your apartment building, it's on fire, the fire department shows up, and they come and save you from the fire. They're saving you from potential death. They're saving your life. So something bad was turned into something good because you were saved. And so as the Bible, as we talk about the fate that we deserve as sinners, you know, we deserve a fate um, that's called hell. You know, that's where the Bible says, look, if you choose not to believe, that is the fate that awaits every single one of us. But through Jesus and his death on the cross, the sacrifice of his life and resurrecting from the grave and through our belief in that, we are saved from what ultimately we deserve. You see, every single one of us in here has sinned. We've all lied. We've all done things that we we shouldn't have done. But Jesus says, look, I have come so that you might be saved through belief in me. That's all it takes is believing in Jesus. So we will be saved from what we might deserve. Romans 10.9 says this, And this is how simple this idea of salvation is. It says this, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to earn it. 
It simply says, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. That's it. You will be saved. And so it takes believing. It's more than knowledge. It's more than just understanding, but believing in his death and resurrection that he is our savior. But Satan will do whatever he can to stop us from believing that, to stop those who come in contact with from wanting to hear the truth of the gospel. Going back into the parable, verse 5 and 6, it says this, Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, because it had no root, it withered away. And so Jesus goes on to explain um, this passage here in verse 16 and 17, and he says this, In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And so number two, the second heart that we encounter is this, the shallow heart. The shallow heart. And next to that, you're going to write, this person is also unsaved. This person is also unsaved. And so as Jesus walks us through what this person is, it says that the seed falls, it grows, you know, grows quickly, but when the sun comes out, it's withered away because it has no roots. It can't get the, again, the nutrients that it needs. And we all know people, again, that may have made an emotional decision to say, oh, I love Jesus, but then there's absolutely no reflection of that in their life. They never come back. They never see him again. They go back to living their old lifestyle. Um, when you study through, you know, and you get to know people um, quite a bit, you know, life is like a roller coaster. You have mountaintops where things are going great, and you have valleys where things are not going well. So we all walk through trials. We all walk through difficult times. And what Jesus says is these people will say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, but as soon as life gets difficult, they're running the opposite direction, looking everywhere else for answers except for Jesus. And so it'd say that they are not a believer because there's no um, inner change. So the meaning of this one is there was an outward conversion, but no inner change. An outward conversion, but no inner change. So they said, you know what, I believe, but nothing in their life reflects the fact that they actually believe in Jesus. So they are unsaved. And to me, this is like the scariest one of all of them. Because these people may have said, you know what, I attend church. I'm a good person. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm nice. You know, I, I do things. I read my Bible. I might, might even pray. But there's been no interchange. They've not internalized and believed that Jesus is, in fact, their Savior. And so these people will go through life thinking, you know, maybe I might have taken that step. But again, it talks about more than knowledge, more than understanding, but actual belief that Jesus saved us through his crucifixion. You see, a lot of us have a lifestyle that uh, reflect Jesus. And so people look at you and they say, you know what, I want what this person has. I want the hope that this person has. Why is this person so happy when his world seems to be falling apart? But there are other of us that say, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, I, I want to get ahead in business. So, you know, integrity goes out the window. There's, you know, I want to sleep with my boyfriend, my girlfriend. I want to do these things that the Bible would say is contradictory to the way Jesus wants us to live. You see, Paul said once you... Uh, take the step of salvation and belief in Jesus, there's an interchange that should be taking place. Again, it's not an instantaneous thing where, you know, all of a sudden you stop sinning. But Paul says, shall we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, by no means. He goes, our desire should be to please God, not to please ourselves. Our desire should be to live for God, not to live in sin. And so when we truly internalize and believe this, there should be an interchange that takes place in our lives where we're trying to reflect Jesus in all that we do. 
And so that true repentance is a turning away from our old lifestyle. So when we truly repent, we are walking away from the life we once lived and into a life that reflects Jesus. We all make mistakes along the way. Absolutely none of us are perfect, but it shouldn't be a lifestyle of sin. And on your outline, I put a simple self-test, a simple self-test to ask yourself this question. In life's trials, do you run from God or to God? Do you run from God or to God? And so when the bottom drops out of your life, are you looking to everything but Jesus for answers? God gave us tons of promises in his word that he will take care of us even in those times because those times will come, but we are to rely on him during those times. So is your life reflecting Jesus? So the next thing, the parable, verse 7, he goes on to talk about the next heart. He says, Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. So Jesus goes on in verse 18 and 19 to explain. He says, And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard, underline heard the word, but underline worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and underline the desires for other things, enter it and underline choke the word, and it becomes, underline that last word, unfruitful, unfruitful. So here's what this person is. This person um, is, number three, the third heart we encounter is the overtaken believer. The overtaken believer, this person is saved, but ineffective. This person has saved, but ineffective. So unlike the second heart that we just talked about, this person has taken the step of, I believe in Jesus, but is struggling with that outward expression of their faith. Again, that interchange that takes place, there should be bearing fruit in your lives. What I mean by that is people look at your life and there's visible evidence that Jesus controls your life. Okay, There's a desire to please God and not live in the sin which I once lived in. And so the meaning of this one is they are too busy worrying about what could happen to go all in. They are too busy worrying about what could happen to go all in. You know, my world's falling apart. You know, I need to provide all these things. So I need to work really hard. And I'm going to prioritize all of these things above my relationship and my faith in Jesus. So I'm too busy focused on other things and not focused on Jesus, the one we should be focused on. You see, the example I would use is if we go out and buy an orange tree and we plant it in our backyard, it's an orange tree. A couple years go by, you've been loving on this thing, putting the fertilizer down, taking care of it, yet it never bears fruit. It is still an orange tree, but it is pretty unfruitful and useless. And for some of us believers, we say, you know what? I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. I've taken that step, but you know, I'm not here plugged in. I'm not attending church on a regular basis. I'm not serving. I'm not telling people about my faith. We're not bearing fruit in our lives. And so you would say that you are the overtaken believer, that you are trusting in other things and not placing God, number one, in our lives, as all of us should, as we go all in. And the other thing I wanted to point out about this passage is back in verse 19, it talks about the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and then the desires for other things. That word desires is the Greek word epithumia, which means a longing, especially for what is forbidden. A longing, especially for what is forbidden. So as a believer... Again, we long for things that are forbidden. I think one of the greatest examples and one of the ones that impacts us the most in the church and around the world, around our country, is uh, pornography. Is a multi-billion dollar business. Billions and billions of dollars pumped into people longing for something else. They're longing for things that shouldn't bring you satisfaction, that won't bring you satisfaction, but they're longing for things especially that are forbidden. The statistics are overwhelming, even in the church, of of people that are addicted to it. 
but it's a longing for things that are only going to bring you down. So as a believer and a lover and a follower of Jesus, we should be reflecting him and not longing for the things of the world. In South Florida, it's evident as we look around us, we have so many distractions down here. The weather's great most of the time. Uh, Boating, golfing, sports, you know, anything you want to do, you could do. And you guys have chosen to be here today, which is great. But some of us get distracted. We want to go do other things and place those things above our relationship in Jesus. So where do our desires lie in our relationship with him? We want to be effective believers, changing people's lives and working and doing things for him. So the first three hearts Jesus shares with us, kind of a recap of how Satan wants to get a hold of us. He says, look, first I'm going to remove the word so it takes no root. So you don't even start, you completely reject the gospel. The second one says, I'm going to deceive into running to the world and not to God. So we're going to look to everywhere else for answers and not to God. You know, it might make that emotional, oh, I believe, but there's no reflection of that. The third heart, it says, I'm going to get believers. So if you take the step of believing, I don't want you to be useful at all. So the devil says, look, I'm going to distract you with all these things so that you can't go out and actually be useful for God. Which brings us to the fourth heart, the fourth, fourth soil that Jesus teaches about in verse 8. And it says this, other seeds fell into good soil, And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. So Jesus goes on to explain in verse 20, he says this, and those those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they underline, hear the word, and underline, accept it, and underline, bear fruit. 30, 60, and 100 fold. 30, 60, and 100 fold. So number four, the fourth soil that we see, the fourth heart is the overcoming believer, the overcoming believer. This person is saved and living it. This person is saved and living it. And this is, as believers, this is who we want to be. We want to be the people characterized by our passion for Jesus. We are hunger and longing for his word. Our desire is to please him and tell people about Jesus and share the gospel with them, to be serving in our church, to be serving in our communities, to be doing great things for Jesus. And so the overcoming believer will take that step and be characterized by the fruit that they bear in their lives. In John 15, verse 8, Jesus said this. He said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He goes, The proof will be the fruit that you bear, the evidence that we see in your life. So the meaning is that there is an outward conversion and their life bears fruit. There is an outward conversion and their life bears fruit. And so as we reflect on the words that Jesus just taught here in these parables, we see that there are four hearts that we come across. And again, those hearts are in this auditorium. Some of us um, have chosen to accept it. We're overcoming. Some of us have accepted it, but we haven't really put it into action. And some of us here haven't taken that step of actually believing in Jesus, taking our knowledge and putting it on the next step. And so it says we have hard hearts, we have shallow hearts, overtaken hearts, and overcoming hearts. And so as we move forward and begin to um, wrap up, I just want you to ask you uh, guys to ask yourself one question is, is, where am I on this spectrum of these four hearts? Where would you say that you are? Then the other question I want you to ask is all the people that you come in contact on a weekly basis, where would you say that those people are at on this spectrum? Are they the hard heart that rejected it? Or are they the ones that are with you serving alongside, getting things done for Jesus? If you're in here today and you're not a believer, your next step is to turn your life over to Jesus. I can't say it any more plain than simply believing in Jesus, confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart that he is Lord, that he has saved you 
that is your first step. After the service, there are going to be prayer partners up front. Find a staff member. Find somebody to pray with you and turn your life over to Jesus. That's the absolute first step in this journey. For the rest of us, as we said at the very beginning, is there's a responsibility once we grasp what the gospel is talking about and what these words are, are saying, what this parable is trying to teach us. We come in contact with four types of people every single day. There are those that are flat out going to reject it no matter how, how hard you tell them what you tell them about Jesus. Okay, but we constantly love on them. We share the gospel with them. We tell them about Jesus. And we're going to continue to drip on them as they move forward. And that's how God begins to soften that heart. And there's some of us that, you know, have friends that, oh, I'm a believer. But really, we all know deep down they probably aren't. You know, and there's some of us that have too busy lives to get engaged. And then some of us are, have friends that are fully engaged in church. But remember this, believers, followers of Jesus, we are responsible for the lost. It is our responsibility. As I said at the very beginning, we had two people raise their hand and say, I would say I have the gift of evangelism. It comes naturally for me to tell people about Jesus. When we look at the biblical model of, of you know, Jesus, he had 12 people that he invested his life in and poured his life into for three years. He said, these are my 12 people. And here at Calvary, we have um, what we call our core values. And these are five things by which we measure success and how we you know, track how we're doing, how we make decisions here at the church. And these are kind of the lens that we view things through. So over the past few years, our church has grown uh, tremendously. And it's been awesome to have more people here hearing the word, you know, just b- being in the word and learning about that. But guess what? That's not how we measure our success. It's great because I think more people need to hear the word. Obviously, the more, the merrier. But we measure success by how well we do these five things. They're going to throw them up here on the screen. So these are the five things that we as a church say we really want to do well. And you start seeing these. You've seen them around campus. You'll see them more. But, you know, truth for where you're at always kind of been our tagline. And so what we did is we took truth and turned it into the five things that we really say, you know what, we need to do this well. And so transform lives through God's word. Again, we are a church about teaching the word of God. Relationships and families matter. Our relationship with others and our families especially, obviously, are very important. So we're going to pour into our kids, our students, and our adults so that they can take that home. What we're talking about today is the letter U, unreached, being reached. Um, the next one is taking next steps of faith. So corporately as a church, taking steps of faith, but also individually in our, in our home, lives at home. And then lastly is H, which is hope in current times. So these are our core values. Obviously, today we're talking about the unreached being reached. So one of our core values, the way that we measure success as a church, is how well are we reaching out to the lost? How well are we going out and telling the friends that we come in contact with about Jesus? When's the last time, ask yourself, when's the last time I truly and intentionally shared my faith with somebody? When is the last time I went out looking for opportunities to share that faith? Again, God brings people into your life to be very intentional about who you're investing in and reaching the lost. See, Jesus had his 12. And there's a book that, that Pastor Dan, and where this came from, he and I were talking about the church being more intentional about sharing the gospel, talking about salvation, but taking that message and leaving this building and telling other people about the hope we have in Jesus and sharing the gospel with people. And there's a book that we read a couple weeks ago. It's called 8 to 15, The World is Smaller Than You Think. And it's by a guy named Tom Mercer. And he uses this idea called oikos. And oikos is a Greek word, which simply means extended household or extended family. And so what he has done is he says, look, Jesus gave us the model. He says, I'm going to pour into 12 guys. And I'm going to change the world 
because I took time to intentionally invest in these 12 people. And he says, then those 12 are going to go out and share with their 12. And those 12 will go out and share with their 12, and so on and so forth. And with a matter of years, Jesus literally flipped the world upside down. And so this concept of 8 to 15 is simply this. God has intentionally put you in the lives of 8 to 15 people. You can think about who those people are. They're your wife, your kids, your husband, your neighbors, your coworkers, your best friends. But God has intentionally given you relationships to invest in, to give you the opportunity to share your faith. Now, how well are you doing with those opportunities? And so next week, as we come back together, we're going to talk about some very simple ways to share our faith. Very simple concepts, very simple ways to have these conversations and to be looking for these conversations to take place. But before we leave today, on the very bottom of your outline, I put 15 blanks. What I'm going to ask you to do today, you'll have to do it right now, as long as you promise to do it at home, is I want you to go home and think, who are my 8 to 15? Who are the people that God has intentionally brought into my life and given me the relationship with that I can invest in? The world has 5.5 billion people in it. It's overwhelming to think, well, I'm one guy. How can I go out and share Jesus with 5.5 billion people around the world? And so most of us don't even take the first step. We don't take a step out and say, you know what? I'm going to tell people about Jesus because we're so overwhelmed with the idea of even beginning. But God has brought you into an intentional relationship with 8 to 15 people. And if you invest in them, and then they say, you know what? I I believe I'm going to invest in my 8 to 15 and so on and so forth. You can imagine the radical change that we see just by taking advantage of what God has brought us in contact with and who God has brought us in contact with. So let's be intentional. Those 8 to 15 people, I want you to write down their names. And this week, I'm going to ask you to do one thing. I want you to pray by name for every one of those individuals every day this week and hopefully beyond this week. We'll keep praying for those people and pray for opportunities to share your faith with those people. Everybody got it? Simple, simple concept. And next week, like I said, we're going to talk about very practical ways to begin those conversations and to have those conversations with our friends and family. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful for the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus, that it's nothing I can do, nothing I have done other than saying, you know what, Jesus, I believe that you are who you are, that you came, you sacrificed your life, you rose again from the grave, you ascended to heaven. Jesus, one day you are coming back. And God, I believe every single word of it. But Father, that's not where I wanted to stop. For every single one of us as we leave this place today, I pray that it's our desire to share that with the people that we come in contact with so that people see the love of Jesus in our lives, that our lives are so transformed that people long for what we have. And so this week I pray for very intentional opportunities that you'd make it obvious to each one of us when we need to step out and share our faith with other people, to share the hope that you've given us through the cross. And Father, in a world where there's chaos, we're going to share the hope that Jesus brings. Jesus, I pray that you go before us this week. I pray that you'll continue to speak to us and grow us each day this week as we come back next week, ready to learn more about what it means and how I can share my faith more effectively with the people that you brought me into their lives, God. Jesus, we love you. We pray that you go before us this week, protect us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.